Lamentations in chapter 3 this morning. As you are turning there, please stand once again for the reading of God's holy word. Lamentations chapter 3, the the chapter, as you will quickly observe, is 66 verses long. Uh, I'm going to focus our attention this morning specifically on sort of the middle section, though um, we will make reference to the beginning and end of the chapter. But right now, I just simply want to read in your hearing sort of the middle section, beginning in verse 19. So find Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. And as you were doing so, let me take this opportunity to remind you that what we hear now in our ears is the very word of God to us. This is God's word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may take your seats. Many of you will no doubt remember the tragedy of the Challenger space shuttle back in 1986. You watched in horror as that shuttle exploded after being in flight for barely one minute. And as that craft disintegrated, killing everyone on board, America watched from her living room feeling utterly hopeless and completely helpless. Jeremiah could relate. Do you remember where we left him? He is in a cave just outside what is left of Jerusalem, and he is in that cave hiding, and he is in that cave weeping. God, you will remember, has sent the Babylonian army as judgment upon Israel for her flagrant sin. Just as a massive earthquake brings everything down to the ground, so the people of God have been leveled by this adversary that God has brought to them. As Jeremiah cowers there in the cave, his senses are all on overload. As he peeks his head out of the cave, he sees what is left of his beloved city, which isn't much as the foreign flags march on and fly high right down Main Street. 
He puts his hands over his ears in an effort to drown out the sounds of war. But it is of no use. Even the deaf can hear the blood-curdling cries. If that was enough, he can even smell it and taste it. The ash in the air is so thick that now it is lodged in his nostrils and stuck to the roof of his mouth. Let's be, let's be very clear that, that Jeremiah isn't here making a molehill into a mountain. This is all as real and as serious as it gets. The heartbreak is real. The devastation is real. The pain and the loss and the sorrow is all real. Homes are gone and lives are cut short. The covenant itself is waning. From the cave, it appears that everything has been lost. There is nothing left. But beloved, mark my words. It is not hopeless. There is a way out, and there is always a way out. After all, the God that we serve, the same God Jeremiah served, is a God who triumphs even over the grave. So there is always hope. And like a tiny candle in the midst of a dark room, this flicker of hope here in Lamentations chapter 3, it burns hot and it burns bright. You will remember that Lamentations is a collection of poems, and these poems are really laments. There are five in total, corresponding with the five chapters that you have in your Bibles. This morning, we put our eyes on the third of these five. Just a passing glance will reveal that this third poem is the longest. In fact, chapters one, two, Four and five all have 22 verses, but this chapter has 66. This is significant. This middle chapter, it seems to be something of a mountain peak. You might think of chapters one and two as ascending the mountain, and then chapters four and five of descending down the other side. But here in the middle, chapter three, is the peak. And I should warn you, though from here you get the clearest and most spectacular of views, the air is thin and the route is altogether treacherous. I should also point out that chapter 3 of Lamentations, like chapters 1 and 2, is an acrostic. But it is different from chapters 1 and 2 in that this poem here is a triple acrostic. In other words, the Hebrew, which is what Lamentations is originally written in, in, in the Hebrew, the first three verses all begin with Aleph, or their version of A. And the second three verses all begin with the letter Bet, or their version B, and so on and so on. This is worth pointing out because such design in the midst of great distress lets us know that what is before us this morning is more than merely the prophet just venting. This is, an this is not an example of road rage, someone just sort of totally unhinged. 
Well, he's actually thinking. He's meditating. He's processing. He's deliberately choosing his words and framing all of this with intention. And he's doing it all the while pouring out his heart to God. Really, the prophet is seeking after hope. He's groping for some hope right in the midst of unparalleled darkness. The first part of the poem makes this more than plain. That is, more, the, the darkness more than plain. God has, in no uncertain terms, terms, turned against His people. And it's portrayed in some pretty radical ways. For example, in verses 7 through 9, God is seen as a warden. The prophet cries out, He, that is God, has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. The, the prophet is lamenting, there is no escape. Why? Because God, the warden, has incarcerated him. It's even worse in verses 10 and 11. We read again, he, speaking of God, he is a, verse 10, a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and... <clears throat> excuse me, and tore me to pieces. Here God is pictured as a, a wild beast who has pounced upon his victim and is tearing him apart. From Jeremiah's perspective, he is living through one of those nature is scary videos that too many of us have seen on the internet. God is swallowing him up. Not only is God compared to a warden and a wild beast, but He's also seen as a warrior. Starting in verse 12, He, speaking of God yet again, He bent His bow and set me as a target for His arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of His quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. You step back, you quickly recognize in this terrifying scene, the prophet is the prey and God is the predator. God is hunting His prophet. God is hunting His people. The point here, beloved, is simply this. Jeremiah is witnessing the very wrath of God as it is unleashed upon him and upon his people. No longer are they singing Psalm 23. Yahweh doesn't appear to be their shepherd. Yahweh is actually their adversary. This whole dynamic is fleshed out a little bit later in this same lament. If you zoom out, what you see is that God's people are drowning in desperation. Why are they so desperate? 
Why are the waves of God's judgment washing over them over and over again? And we can answer that two ways. On the one hand, this is all God's doing. We've seen this throughout Lamentation, so I won't repeat myself yet again this morning, but, but I will say this, it should strike us, at least as peculiar, to say the least, that so many of our self-appointed evangelical leaders sound so different than the Bible. What do I mean? I mean that so many pastors and authors and conference speakers and podcast hosts seem to have an allergy to God's sovereignty. The best I can see it, in an effort to protect their sacrament of free will, many treat Scripture like origami. As the self-designated public relations department, they are quick to cover for God. They assure us God has nothing to do with fill in the blank. God, we are told, is more than able to bless us, but curse us? Well, that's not the God we serve, so we are told. To which Lamentation says, have you read me? More literally, beginning in verse 37 now, verse 37 Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good, catch this, and bad come? The context redeeming grace only reinforces this passage and what it intends. All of Lamentations, what is the context? But suffering and devastation. The tsunami of God's wrath has washed up on the shores of Jerusalem. Well, who has sent it? Who did this? Where did it come from? Well, the answer came from God. God sent the Babylonians. God did all of this. At the same time, of course, we have to be quick to say that this was all their doing as well. In other words, the judgment of God is owing to people's sin. God's wrath is a response to human rebellion, and it is always that way. When God dispenses His wrath, He does not do so at random. Nor should we picture God as some young adolescent in August with a magnifying glass hunting for anthills, just looking for something to torture. No, not at all. God's judgment is just. It is deserved. It is measured. If we can put it this way, the punishment always fits the crime. And that's exactly what's unfolding here in Lamentations. If you go all the way back to the very first chapter, the fifth verse, Lamentations 1.5, we are told that God has afflicted Israel for the multitude of her transgressions. Or as we see recorded right in front of us in Lamentations 3, verse 39, 
Lamentations 3.39, why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Why should he complain? And the answer is he shouldn't. He shouldn't complain because he is getting exactly what he deserves. This all leads, this whole idea of the just judgment of God, it leads the prophet to cry out. Cry out, not like cry out raising his fist and shaking it in the sky as if this is unfair, but he cries out calling the people around him to repent. You can see this starting in verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. I ask you, what is the prophet summoning the people to do? Just one word. To repent. In the face of our sin, brothers and sisters, we must humble ourselves and repent of our sin. Let's press this a little bit further. What are the ingredients of this repentance? Jeremiah mentions three. He says in verse 40, test and examine and return. That is to say, in light of the judgment that is being experienced, the people of God ought to confess and not complain. You see, beloved, true repentance necessitates that we be honest with ourselves, that we be honest with God, that we be honest with our sin that we be honest with those whom we have sinned against. We have to own our sin for what it is, and that is our own sin. You might consider the events that unfolded in the garden when sin first entered into the world. You remember when Adam was called to give an account before God? What did he do? He quickly blamed the wife God gave him. Then you will recall when the hot lamp of interrogation was turned upon his wife Eve, well, what did she do? In effect, she said, well, it's not my fault. It's that pesky serpent's doing. You know the serpent you made, God? And humanity has been doing the same thing ever since. We are perpetual blame shifters and finger pointers. It's not my fault. It's my environment. We blame our sin on our upbringing or our spouses. We blame it on our boss or our co-workers. We blame our sin on our neighbors or our elected officials. But it's never our fault. Don't blame me, we say. My classmates pressured me. Or, as become sort of the rage in the last couple of decades, it's not my fault I was born with a predisposition to fill in the blank. We assuage our guilty consciences by saying, 
Well, I didn't know it was that bad, or I didn't mean to. It's excuses, it's excuses, it's excuses. And the prophet thunders this morning, excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got them and they stink. We have to be a people who are honest. Test, the prophet says. Examine. Return. Look in the mirror. Confess your sin. Own it. Especially men. Man up and take responsibility for your sin. And then man and woman, young and old alike. Don't stall out there, but confess your sin and make a beeline for the cross of Christ. You see, we confess our sins. And we confess our sins because we are told in God's Word that Christ is the Savior of sinners. So prerequisite number one is that we acknowledge that we are sinners. Confess your sin to God and cast yourself on Christ. Anything less is half measures. Band-aids on gunshot wounds. Let's say for a second though you do have a gunshot wound. If not band-aids, then what? We know what not to do, but what are we to do? Maybe we could frame it this way. Judgment is God's doing. Lamentations makes that clear. And judgment is provoked by our sin. And since we are all sinners, what hope do we have? Well, it's hiding. It's hiding right in plain sight right there in the middle of our lament. Specifically in verses 21 through 33. I say that because here we find a remarkable transition. One that moves from hopelessness to hope. From tragedy to triumph. From catastrophe to confidence. In a lot of ways, verse 21 is the first ray of light to peek through the dark clouds that is lamentations. And it begins, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This would be the point, Christian, if you are asleep, that you ought to wake up. How can the prophet have hope? Because this is a hopeless situation. Foreign armies have invaded. Jeremiah is tucked away in a cave as his nation is uprooted and all that he has known and loved is deported. But perhaps to sort of turn the screw and bring it closer to home, this is that time in life when your son or daughter is dead. right? A drunk driver has careened up onto the curb and taking them out. Or you just discovered illicit text messages on your husband's phone. Turns out he hasn't actually been working late on that project. He's been committing adultery. Where is hope then? Where is hope when cancer kills? 
when marriages disintegrate, when churches split, when children perish, how can you possibly have any hope while you are in the grips of utter hopelessness? Well, it starts by following the lead of the weeping prophet. Notice well, and here I'm talking specifically to you ladies, the basis of the prophet's hope in an otherwise hopeless situation is not found by scrolling through social media. That's not where we turn. That's not where you run when things get bad. We all do this, but in my experience, women are the worst. How can I numb my mind and not deal with real life? I know. There's no salvation in that. Nor will salvation be found in mustering up men enough resolve to just get over it. Neither is true hope discovered in just putting one foot in front of the other and carrying on all the while muttering to ourselves, it is what it is. That's nonsense. True hope is found in God. In looking to God. In repenting before God and in trusting in God. Go after it this way. What sobered up our weeping prophet after his hangover? Verse 21 announces, by calling to mind. In other words, by remembering. By setting his mind upon the truth of God. And what specifically did he call to mind? Verse 22 is glorious. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You hear that? The rock solid, miles deep foundation wherein hope is found is what? God. More to the point, God's love and God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. Church, you know what is before us then, don't you? This is a trilogy of covenant commitment. And it gives us hope, and it gives us joy, and it gives us confidence in the midst of absolute chaos. It is God's love and it is God's mercy, and it is God's faithfulness that is both balm for your wounded soul and rebar for your weary heart. Now I'm going to point out that the two words that you see there in the ESV, translated steadfast love, they actually translate one gloriously pregnant word in Hebrew, the word hesed. I will say, steadfast love is a fine enough translation as far as things go. The problem is, this one Hebrew word isn't easily captured or pinned down by merely one sort of English word. Really, this word carries with it the idea of kindness 
and loyalty. You could say that it refers to God's covenant love or even His loyal love. And that's all true. Really, what seems to be being communicated here is God's unrelenting covenant commitment to His people despite their sin. That's steadfast love. Which bleeds over into the second of this magnificent trilogy. Mercy. The original Hebrew word comes from a word related to the womb. And therefore, this mercy describes the tender, caring love of a mother. Picture the scene. There is a gentle and loving mother caring for her newborn, literally giving of her life to sustain the life of this little one. And as you picture that scene, what are you supposed to see? Lamentations answers. Mercy. Rounding out this trilogy is the end of verse 23's faithfulness. Faithfulness carries with it the idea of trustworthiness or reliability. In other words, God is going to do what He says. You can stake your life on God and His Word. That's the flavor. Now, brothers and sisters, this trilogy of covenant commitment, it is glorious, and it is rich, and it is wonderful. And you know what? We actually see this trilogy incarnated in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that because Christ has come in a very real sense to put flesh on God's steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Think about it. What is the single clearest demonstration of God's love for sinners like us? Romans 5.8 answers, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we live in a world today of cheap love, of commitmentless love, which biblically speaking is really no love at all. Because love, as defined by God, who is love itself, love is not self-serving but sacrificial. True love is laying down one's life for another. And that is precisely what Christ has done. The cross of Christ, where the Son of God gave up His life. Don't forget, gave up His life for those who hated Him and rebelled against Him. That cross is the epitome of love. The same is true of mercy. Christ robed Himself in flesh to show us mercy. We can get at this by me asking you, what is Christ's posture towards sinners? 
And if you want to know the answer, then you need to look at the record that we have in the Gospels. And what do we discover there when we look in the Gospels and we look at Christ and His posture towards sinners? What is immediately apparent is that Christ is patient with sinners. He's ever gentle, bearing with them. You will look in vain in the Gospels for Christ ever casting out or turning away a sinner. Instead, He welcomes sinners. Beloved, Christ welcomes even you. Christ by nature is determined to love and to forgive and to extend grace and mercy to us. In fact, we can go so far as to say on the cross, Christ's arms are open wide welcoming sinners to Himself as a magnificent display of mercy. The same Jesus who is steadfast love and mercy incarnated is also altogether faithful. He has promised that He won't change His mind on us. He won't give up on us or wash His hands of us. We are told that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you'd better believe that is exactly what He has done, is doing, and will do. Christ is ever faithful. And so when we consider verses 22 and 23... When we reflect upon and call to mind verse 21, God's steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, we can't help but reflect upon and call to mind Christ. Weak and weary sinner, when your faith fails, when your sin is heavy, your soul dry and hope elusive, Look to Christ and His cross. For Christ and His cross is an oasis in the midst of a desert. And all of this, beloved, is good news. But there's actually great news. There's better news. You know what that is? None of this is temporary. You see, when we reflect upon God's steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness, there is no expiration date. Our passage goes out of its way to press these truths upon our souls. Verse 22 again, the steadfast love of the Lord never, never ceases. When it comes to His mercies, verse 22, they never come to an end. In fact, verse 23, they are new every single morning. Just as God is pleased to call the sun to rise each and every day. And and you can count on it. God has always done that and God will always do that. Just as you woke up this morning and you saw the sun cresting over the horizon... 
so each and every day God's mercy arises fresh upon our souls. And we shouldn't think for a moment that God's faithfulness is scant. But what? Great, the prophet says, is your faithfulness. It's great. It's deeper than the oceans. It's higher than the heavens. It's wider than the universe. God's faithfulness is great. This is the anchor for our souls in the midst of storms. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God and His gospel is our anchor. He is committed to us. He has said as much in His Word, and He has demonstrated as much on the cross. God is ours, and we are His. And so, Christian, find hope. Now let's be clear, Lamentations 3 is true and, back to Jeremiah now, Jerusalem is still no more. Remember, dead bodies still line the streets. The invasion will run its course. Lives are being cut short and those that aren't will forever be changed. As Jeremiah again pokes his head outside of the cave and looks, he sees Babylon marching through the streets. Again, to put it into our context, for you and I, you might still feel the pain of singleness. One of your children might hate you. Or cancer will continue to ravage your body. You may very well be on the receiving end of a multitude of injustices. Suffering might very well be the lot that God has ordained for you. But here's the point. There is hope. Even in the midst of all of this, there is hope. Hope because no matter what you are experiencing, God has promised, verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, that's true, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. You see, Christian, there is hope to be had, and that hope is in God. It is based on God, revolves around God, and comes from God. You remember, in the midst of sorrow, what did Jeremiah do? He, verse 21 again, he calls to mind, and he calls to mind who God is. And here's the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Who God is hasn't changed. Or we could say it this way, the, the past, right? Or I guess here is the past who I know God to be from Scripture, the past gives hope for the present and all the way in to the future. Whatever you or I see outside of our window or read about on Facebook, I know who God is. I know who God was. 
I know who God will be. He is our rest. Christian, in Christ, God is for you, not against you. In Christ, quite literally, every molecule in all of creation is being flexed to exalt God and to do you good. So that in the midst of tragedy, whether it be what Jeremiah is witnessing or what you are experiencing, God has promised, verse 31 again, I will not cast off forever. The Father's love for His elect is steadfast. Christ's mercies are never ceasing. And the Holy Spirit's faithfulness is ever present. You see, the good news of who God is in the gospel for us is meant to be a soft pillow and a warm blanket even in the midst of suffering. And mark my words, you will suffer. Jeremiah did. Israel did. You will Maybe you have. Maybe you are. But you will. And Christian, suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive. If I can be so bold, you can suffer in hope. In fact, one of the marks of true and deep and spiritual piety One of the marks of growth in grace is that we as a people will suffer in hope. The question is how? How do we suffer in hope? And Lamentations 3 teaches us by remembering God. Specifically, by marinating in the truth The truth of God's grace, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's love, God's covenant commitment to you, even in your suffering. I can't help but mention this, but this is one of the reasons why Christ has given His church the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Among other things, it is a sacred meal intended to help us remember. Remember what? Who Christ is and what He has done for us. So that each and every week when we gather, regardless of what CNN says or Fox News reports, no matter the call that you have received from your doctor or the pink slip that you found in your folder at work, in the face of suffering and affliction and injustice, or sometimes just plain old fatherly discipline from God for our sin. No matter what it is, each and every week as we come to the table of the Lord, we have a perpetual reminder. God is for us in the Gospel. Christ has shed His blood for you. The Father loves you and the Holy Spirit is with you.
And catch this, whatever you are going through, no matter how gnarly it is, unlike God's steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, whatever you are enduring, it does have an expiration date. May I suggest to you, this is why Jeremiah, at the end of Lamentations 3, actually has hope. In the midst of chaos, he actually possesses a measure of confidence. For example, in verse 56, God has heard Jeremiah's pleas. In verse 57, God has drawn near to his prophet to comfort him. And in verse 58, God is confident, or rather, Jeremiah is confident, rather, that God has taken up his cause. You see, the weeping prophet now drying his eyes reflects. God has, verse 59, heard their taunts. That is, God has heard the taunts of the enemy. And rather than remain idle, the prophet is now utterly convinced God will act. So sure is Jeremiah that his confidence reaches something of a fever pitch at the end of chapter 3. Pick it up with me starting in verse 64. Verse 64, we read, You will repay them. Uh, Speaking of Babylon, the enemies of God's people, the, the prophet is saying, God will repay them according to the work of their hands. Verse 65 adds, You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. And then Jeremiah concludes in verse 66, You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Catch all that? Repay, give, curse, pursue, destroy. God will do all of this. And like wind in his sail, Jeremiah's confidence builds with each and every Verb. Now back up. Let's not miss this. How does Jeremiah move throughout this lament from catastrophe to confidence? Full well, this is so important, full well recognizing that the catastrophe is real and that it will not be over by the end of the weekend. How do we account for Jeremiah's hope? And again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, he ran to God. He retreated to God. He remembered God. Who God is and what God has done. The same is true for you and me. So often we find ourselves in situations where we are utterly helpless and completely hopeless. It could be owing to our own personal sin or we could just be getting shrapnel from the sin of those around us. But regardless, we find ourselves facing disaster and suffering and affliction. Christian, even then, there is hope to be had. It is found in God. Look to Him. Remember all he has done, both in your life and in what God has done in the pages of Scripture. Look to him. 
Preach these truths to your own soul and do so until your soul catches up in believing these truths. And find refuge in the cross of Christ. That is where our hope is found, beloved. We should say that is where our life is found. It's found in God. Our Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We ask that you would, in your good and kind providence, that you would open up a floodgate of hope in the life of this church. We pray this would be true in terms of the church, in terms of families, in terms of individuals. We pray that we would be a people who find hope, hope in you. So tune our hearts to sing your praises, to suffer well, to esteem Christ more precious than anything that this world has or offers to us and give us hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.